Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. This is Allison R. Brown, and I'm your host. Today we're going to talk about the criminal justice system and the education system and where those worlds intersect. Mass incarceration and its connections to this nation's system of slavery have been brought to light lately by the great work of Michelle Alexander, law professor and author of the seminal book, The New Jim Crow, and Ava DuVernay, director of the documentary film 13th. The great work of these women is shining a light on the real lives of people who are trapped in the criminal justice system. For a few years now, there have been tremendous bipartisan efforts to end mass incarceration and pull back on the very American tendency toward punishment and throw away. My guest today is and has been a leader in that work and himself has been greatly impacted by the criminal justice system. Ronald Simpson Bay is the alumni associate of Just Leadership USA. He is also a cohort leader with the Leading with Conviction Advanced Leadership Training Initiative. Welcome to Schoolhouse, Ron. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So, Ron, I have to confess, I am absolutely amazed. I've heard of the work of Just Leadership USA and just have been amazed, honestly, by what you all have accomplished already and are accomplishing right now and doing so with the voices of people, people like yourself who are formerly incarcerated and are changing policies and changing hearts and minds. So I want you to talk about just leadership, but first let's talk about you. How did you find your way into this work? What is your story? Well, I found my way into this work quite well reluctantly. I've served 27 years in Michigan Department of Corrections on a wrongful conviction. I'm with the prison in 1985, and in 2012, my conviction was overturned, and I was subsequently released. And as a result, I mean, I got into this advocacy work even before I was released from prison. I was a long-time advocate inside of prison for incarcerated people's rights, and because I saw how poorly the prison system handled people, treated people, dehumanized people. So I got into the act of, or to the, into the business of trying to make a change. So when I came home, I got involved in advocacy work with other organizations, and I ended up at Just Leadership taking their year-long leading with conviction training. At Just Leadership, they have the audacious goal of cutting the prison population in half by 2030. And so we seek to do that through our leadership development, membership, and advocacy. Mm-hmm. And so I got released from prison, and this is where I am now. And so what is Just Leadership, and what do you aim to do? Well, Just Leadership itself it is a national nonpartisan membership advocacy organization. And as I said, it has the audacious goal to cut the we visited the population half by 2030. We are both based in New York City. I personally live in Detroit. I'm the alumni associate. I work, I work remotely. And what we try to do, all we seek to do, we have currently have 300 leaders in 27 states in Washington, D.C., all across the country. And we have leaders from as high as the Department of Justice, all the way down to local level, uh, advocacy people, policy people, grassroots organizers, direct service providers. And we're trying to change something, do this, change something about the national problem of mass incarceration. And you have a goal that by 2030, is it, you're going to cut the number of incarcerated people in half? Yes, that's the goal. How do you intend to do that? We have a three-pronged solution to our um, to our goals. Our leadership development, we created a national network of leaders united through a shared vision for criminal justice. We have partnered with formerly incarcerated leaders. We engage the 
Center for Institutional Change and Social Change at Columbia University to help us research the problem, and we developed and employed a dynamic, inclusive leadership model. Our national membership drive, we believe that the transformative system change is accelerated through the strength in numbers. We encourage Americans of all backgrounds to band together against prison policies that destroy families and communities and waste taxpayer money. And through our advocacy work, we are firmly rooted in the belief that those closer to the problem are closest to the solution. So we consistently and meaningfully infuse the voices of those directly impacted by the criminal justice system into the dialogue and reform. And so through those three areas, we bring those three concepts together in our leadership development training, and we have people all across the country that work nationally and locally to help change mass incarceration. You are well on your way. I mean, you have successes that you can actually count. What are some of those successes, and then what have been some of the biggest challenges for your work? Currently, we have what we call our Closed Lackers Campaign. We are part of a coalition, actually leader coalition of 150 or so organizations in New York that have come together around the issue of closing Rikers. Because Rikers, to us, is a microcosm of the prison industrial complex that has led us down this dark but reversible path. Mm-hmm. We live in a country that has an abundance of sympathy for just about everyone, but we're very punitive. We don't leave a lot of space for redemption, transformation, and second chances, even though rhetorically we suggest that we do so. Mm-hmm. But our uh, closed rights campaign has recently, well, back up a little bit. A couple of years ago, only people talking about closing rights were the people inside of it. Mm-hmm. And now we have this coalition of 150 organizations, and March the 31st, Mayor de Blasio of New York signed on to the closed rights campaign, right. even though he had initially said it was a waste of time and resources. That was a huge victory for us. And how that translates nationally, we feel like Rikers is every jail and every jail is Rikers. So closing Rikers, which is the symbol of the problem of mass incarceration in America, translates and trickles down into all across the country as far as mass incarceration and how we can do in every facility around the country. There's a, a quote from the Sentencing Project report on the Just Leadership USA website. And that website for folks who are listening is justleadershipusa.org. And the quote from the Sentencing Project, I think, really tells the story of mass incarceration or begins to do so. And the quote says, at a cost of $85 billion annually, that's billion with a B, 2.3 million Americans are behind bars and an additional 5.6 million Americans are under correctional supervision. What do you think that says, Ron, about who we are as a nation? And what does it say about who we we can be with so much room? There's so much room there to grow. We are a nation that's still struggling with this past. You know, we are, we are a nation that don't even recognize racism exists in a lot of cases. But I know the recent political activities really show that that's stark contrast. We talk about redemption and we talk about you know, forgiveness and all this thing, but we are a selective group of people in this country. So I call it the United States. We are a country of convenient Christians. And we based hmm. our foundation is based on Christianity. But the application of Christian values is selectively applied. And we have so many people, not just 2.3 million people in prison, but there's about 70 million people that have been impacted by the criminal justice system. 70 million. Yes, 70 million haven't actually impacted, either have records or have uh, been arrested or have some contact with the 
criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. The two point three million, that's just what's currently in prison and in jails at this moment. So mm-hmm. we have a lot of room. We have a lot of room for, for change. And we have seen that this whole war on drugs and getting tough on crime is just a smoke screen because it hasn't really any results mm-hmm. other than more and more and more incarceration. The United States make up about five, four or five percent of the world's population, yet we house twenty five percent of the world's incarcerated people. Right. Although we have two point three or four million people currently incarcerated in jails and prisons around the country, mm-hmm. there are seventy million people that have been impacted, directly impacted by the criminal justice system. You know, probation, jails, arrests, what have you. So we said we just leadership, we seek to cut those numbers in half. If it's not already, I'm gonna make convenient Christians a hashtag. Just so you know, Ron. <laughs> I promise to attribute it. <laughs> so, you know, one of the many things that is remarkable about your work and just leadership is the ways in which you all, you truly do lift up the voices and are the voices of returning citizens, of formerly incarcerated people. And I'm wondering, you know, from your perspective, what what do returning citizens really need from society and from their communities and neighbors when they're released from prison? And I'm, I'm talking about, of course, the basic necessities to just survive, but also to be engaged as you are and have been in the, the political process when they don't have the right to vote often and have been so marginalized by society. So what do they need in the, the kind of basic realm and then uh, to be the, the strong advocates and activists that you have been? I think it actually starts before they get released from prison. I think it should start in prison. You know, people incarcerated need to know, they need to be first treated like people. You know, mm-hmm. I don't call them prisoners or ex-cons. We adjust leadership. We try to, in changing the narrative, one of the things we seek to do is change, you know, what we call and how we recognize them. They are people. They should be treated as people first. Mm-hmm. And while they're incarcerated, they should be provided the skill sets and the tools to make them useful citizens when they come home. So the thing about it, you know, people incarcerated, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Mm-hmm. And we as a society haven't shown them any love or any care and concern. And when they get out, they're just angry, bitter people for the most part. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, we gave them a second chance. They shouldn't be angry. But the problem with that is that most people that's incarcerated were hurt people mm-hmm. before they were incarcerated. They were traumatized prior to being incarcerated. And we all know that hurt people hurt people. So we need to give, once they get re- released, we need to give them a second chance, welcome back to the community with open arms, and just don't treat them as pariahs. Treat them as, you know, as humans. Give them the same opportunity you would give another person that didn't have a arm. Record, so to speak. That's a perfect place to start. And from there, you will see as a society that people in incarcerated coming home has so much to offer because, like you say, in just leadership, those closest to the problem, closest to the solution. The reason that is because former incarcerated people have lived through the trauma and horrors of prison and they understand, those that are focused understand what it's going to take to make a change. The work that we do at the Communities for Just Schools Fund is very focused on equity in education, access to educational opportunity, and particularly for for black and brown children who are so often excluded from the educational process through suspensions, expulsions, and of course through law enforcement referrals in schools and school-based arrests. And so there is a direct connection between 
the education system and the criminal justice system, you know, school discipline and school pushout and harsh school climates really disproportionately impact black and brown children. And school is often their entree to structural racism. Mass incarceration is really a perpetuation of what young people often experience in schools. And you mentioned the Close Rikers campaign. Of course, Khalif Browder, many people know of him and his horrific story, a young black man in New York City who was incarcerated at Rikers with no charges filed for allegedly stealing a backpack that actually he hadn't. And the tragic story of him and the trajectory that was fueled by this mindset of mass incarceration and ultimately his suicide and his death and his mother's tragic death as well. What about the young people, Ron? What are you seeing when it comes to mass incarceration and and young people? Young people in mass incarceration is regrettably, I mean, I'm not even sure how to say it. I don't want to say hand in hand, but... The young people are like the feeder system for incarceration. Mm. This whole notion of the school to prison pipeline, yeah. it's a real notion where they take the, you know, third and fourth grade reading scores and base their projections on future prison beds based on, on those scores. So I think it's a concerted effort by a conglomerate of systems in our country to provide less than adequate education to basically urban and inner city youth and then they know what the fallout's going to be. You know, poor education, like poor work skills, poor opportunity, you know, your whole quality of life changes. And so when you provide inadequate education and services to people, especially children, they end up becoming, you know, problems. Mm. They end up being, you know, getting in trouble. They end up not developing healthy habits, healthy lifestyle, which leads to a whole myriad of other issues, healthcare issues, mm-hmm. viable issues. So, I think that we need to do a much, much better job with our youth, especially in the city schools. Like, I live in Detroit, and the Detroit school system has been in receivership and bankruptcy and all kinds of things. The political people and the politicians fight over the dollars while the children suffer mm-hmm. because of lack of vision and programming. So I think that we need to definitely do a much, much better job in how we treat and deal with youth in our country. And do you see opportunities for collaboration between, so, you know, on the the education justice side of things, organizers are often fighting the starvation of public education. And on the criminal justice side, organizers and advocates are, you all are really pushing against the mass infusion of resources into detention facilities and into the system of criminal justice that keeps people incarcerated even long after they're they're no longer physically imprisoned. What are the possible areas of collaboration or synergies in order to move work forward together? Yeah, just leadership, we have fought hard for the last couple of years on what's called the Federal Pell Grant Program. Back in the 90s, under Bill Clinton's administration, the federal government had discontinued Pell Grants within the prisons. Which was a vital program. I took advantage of that program myself while I was inside. I be, you know, took college classes. I became a certified paralegal, and and I improved myself. That's one of the reasons I'm doing the work that I do today. Mm-hmm. But in '96, they cut the Pell Grant program, and so the last couple of years has been a push toward reinstating Pell Grants, which they did to some degree. And now there's a move on the way under the current administration to suspend education in prisons again. 
which is totally ridiculous mm-hmm. because we know that, you know, when you, when you know better, you do better. And it's a proven fact that, you know, the higher education, the more education the person attains while they're incarcerated, the less likely they are to return to prison, the less the recidivism rate is. So it's not just good political policy. It's good public policy. It's a safety policy mm-hmm. for us to educate those who are incarcerated. So I think that community should and could get behind pushing more education and more programs instead of more punitive measures. You know, we build solitary confinement cells and we build all these security measures without providing any type of, you know, means for people to actually rehabilitate themselves. Right. And education is a good point in which we get, you know, push to educate those who's coming home. Mm-hmm. It would behoove us not to do it because the people that's in prison are coming home. Ninety percent of them are returning to the communities. So why not return them as educated people who wanted to do something better for their community instead of bitter, angry people wanting to further destroy their community? And a lot of the people who are returning are returning to schools. They're young people returning to the classroom and need supports inside so that when they're in, they're actually receiving education just as you described. They have the resources that they need to continue to propel forward. And then they also are ready when they leave to re-engage and re-enter their schools. Absolutely. Yeah. The thing about prison is it's a very sobering experience. Either you, you get in there, you get it, you have what I call a light bulb moment, you have your epiphany, and most people do. And if they want to make a change in their lives, and once the, most of the people reach that point where they do want to make that change, mm-hmm. we should embrace them at that moment or embrace them shortly thereafter and provide them with the sources resources that they need to be successful people. Now, young people coming home, they want to go to school. They want to get back, you know, reacclimate to society in a meaningful way. They have something meaningful to provide. And we miss a heck of an opportunity if we don't engage them on that level. Let me ask you about restorative justice, restorative practices. What is your experience with restorative justice? What are your thoughts about restorative justice as a, a way to help heal society? Oh, restorative justice is an excellent way to heal society. In my former job, prior to coming to Just Leadership, I worked at an organization called American Friends Service Committee, and I developed a project called the Good Neighbor Project, which was built on restorative justice principles. We sought to connect people serving life and long senses in Michigan in a one-on-one co-mentorship relationship with people in the community. And that relationship, mostly through letter writing, but as the relationship developed, I saw people starting to visit, people that they were incarcerated, their incarcerated partners, they started accepting phone calls. I've heard recently there's been a few cases where the people on the outside have actually helped to get lawyers and people on the inside to look at the cases again. So in traditional restorative justice, you have a one-on-one dialogue between the offender and the victim. Mm-hmm. But in my definition, or redefining restorative justice, we felt that the community is a secondary victim. The community suffers almost as much as the victim does, maybe not so much emotionally, but definitely through you know, financial and, and what goes on in the community, mm-hmm. the quality of life in the community. So we, the community can reach out by reaching into the facilities and co-mentoring people that's in there, working with them, and just learning the dialogue with them. Because you're going to discover that not all people that's incarcerated are monsters that they're portrayed to be. They're just good people that made bad choices at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. And they want they want a second chance. They want to prove that they're good people. So through restorative justice, the community can embrace 
people that's coming home or, or embrace them on the inside. Mm-hmm. And the people on the inside can embrace the concept as well. Me personally, back in 2001 on Father's Day, I was sitting in the jail here in prison in Michigan mm-hmm. waiting for my children to visit. I have a son and three daughters. And I talked to my son this morning. He said, hey, Dad, we're going to come visit you today. And I'm like, fantastic. I love to see my children. So 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, the time goes on, and they never show up. Mm-hmm. And so I make a few calls home, and I, I couldn't find my children. I finally discovered when I talked to my ex-mother-in-law. She said, uh, have, you haven't heard? I said, no, what's going on? I'm looking for the kids. She said, Little Ronnie's been shot and killed. Oh, no. My 21-year-old son had been shot and killed by a 14-year-old juvenile. Mm. I was left with a choice. Either I was going to be angry mm-hmm. and vindictive and be bitter, or I was going to embrace restorative justice practices mm-hmm. and principles and apply it to the situation, which I did. I forgave the kid. I advocated for him to be treated as a juvenile, not as an adult. Mm-hmm. And he ended up serving seven years in the juvenile system and went home. So that was my personal contribution mm-hmm. to restorative justice. I wanted to restore our community because I felt that punishing that young man to a life in prison without parole was not going to bring my son back. It was not going to do anything for the community. It was only going to further erode and destroy his family and the fabric of our mm-hmm. community. So restorative justice, I believe, is a great means to an end. You have an incredible story, Ron, and I appreciate that horrible real-life example of the ways in which restorative justice is a healing strategy and tool. And, uh, you know, many of the organizers that we support are pushing for restorative justice in their schools because they know that punishment isn't working to heal the harms and the trauma in the, the person or the people that committed a wrong and also ultimately isn't going to heal the trauma in the person that that was wronged. And uh, restorative justice is, is a way to really get at healing the parties involved and, as you said so eloquently, the society at large. So I appreciate that. You mentioned that your membership is kind of all over the map and all over the United States and in different sectors of activity, including at DOJ. And I know I know Daryl Atkinson is there at the Department of Justice or has been, and you have members working in all facets of of life. But I wonder about the federal government and the current administration and what your concerns are about some of the wins that you've been able to achieve in the hands of the current administration. And then what are some of the opportunities that maybe have presented themselves in this administration? This current administration has presented a lot of concern for everybody (laughs) in a lot of areas. (laughs) Criminal justice just being one of them. When we have we have the movement in with the decarceration movement, especially those black people in America, we've been through a lot in this country in four hundred years. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll survive a few months or a year, whatever how long this current administration lasts. So the challenge is they while they while they are problematic, they don't really concern us because we feel like we're gonna double down and keep going because right now the movement to decarcerate America has bipartisan support, even with this administration. Everybody recognizes that we have we've had a failed war on drugs and we've just just getting tough on crime thing has failed us. So both sides of the aisle want to do something about it. They may have different motivations for doing it. One may be fiscally responsible, one may be socially responsible, but mm-hmm. we don't care. As long as both sides you know, want to do something about it, we can come to some kind of consensus and make it happen. I mean, that's one of the challenges. But we see that 
despite the challenges, there's a groundswell of support across the country politically and in the community for for change. Mm-hmm. Those of us in do this work, we are encouraged what's going on out there. Uh, the Department of Justice, they recently, you know, announced some, they want the prosecutors to be tough on sentencing people in, you know, for drug crimes. But you, if you've been following it, there's been some pushback from prosecutors across the country about that. That's an amazing testament to itself. That tells you the level of heart and mind change that we are beginning to have mm-hmm. in this country, where you have prosecutors disagreeing with the top prosecutor in the country about implementing harsh sentences again. It was a failed practice then, it's going to be a failed practice now. Mm-hmm. So what I always advocate for those the tough on crime crowd, don't be just tough on crime, be tough on solutions. I feel like there's another hashtag in there somewhere, Ron. Uh- <laughs> 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 so... <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Ron. Uh, Ronald Simpson Bay is the Alumni Associate of Just Leadership USA. He is also a cohort leader with the Leading with Conviction Advanced Leadership Training Initiative. Ron, if folks want to find you online, how can they do that? My name is Ronald at JustLeadershipUSA.org. That's my email address. We have a website at Just Leadership, www leadershipusa.org. You can find me in either one. Thank you so much. And thanks to all of you again for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Have a wonderful week. <laughs> <laughs>